Good morning. It's great to be back with you, although it's under, you know, the bummer of the circumstance of Scott being sick. Uh, he called me and, um, you know, I, I was available this Sunday, so I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll make this happen. And so thank you. And perfect. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And so yeah, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And in, our, in the valley, if you've been to the valley, you, you may know about this. We, we have a place called Rudy's Barbecue, and it's fantastic. And so we have a Thanksgiving tradition. We get all our meat from there. So no dry turkey. Uh, it's amazing meat and brisket. We did have turkey, but it's like the best turkey you ever had. And so great stuff. And then anyway, uh, wonderful time. But it's good to be with you again. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And so today we're going to continue with this series on, uh, on who we are. And so you're doing a whole series on your identity, on your values. And so we're going to walk through each one of those. Last week we talked about practicing, um, what did we talk about last week? Practicing unity in a divided world. And the whole concept of what does it mean to hold certain things with great conviction, but at the same time not get hung up on secondary issues that will unnecessarily divide us. And so today, this week, um, the topic is submitting to Scripture. That is the second value that you have. And there's going to be a lot of passages we're going to look at today, but we're going to kind of anchor it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But before we do, if you remember, we talked about values. Last week, we mentioned that values are like an iceberg. The, so the behavior is like the tip of the iceberg. It's what you can see. It's, it's how um, people behave. But what's driven by their behavior is what's underneath. It's the stuff you don't see. And so values are these core convictions that shape your identity and drive your behavior. And so it's wise and good and um, important for you as a church during this season to define who you are, because these things we're talking about over the next bunch of weeks, they're not really going to change. They're, they're just who you are, and they're not who everybody is, but they're who you uniquely are. And so the value today of, of submitting to Scripture really comes from, well, it can come from a variety of passages. I think 2 Timothy 3 is probably the best one. And this is what it says. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so based on that, in your statement of faith, that is the statement of faith that we as a, as a tribe have together, it says this, we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And from that part of your statement of faith, you get the explanation of your value, which is submitting to Scripture means the Bible is the ultimate authority by which we discern and determine everything we do and think. So that's important, right? 
So that's why we submit to it, because we believe it is the ultimate authority. It is our, it is our code. And therefore, because of that, we believe, that all it, we believe in all it teaches, seek to obey all it requires, and trust in all that it promises. And so today, the sermon is pretty simple. We're just going to kind of follow along that, that pathway. So there's just three points that we're going to develop today. So submitting to Scripture, what does it mean? It means we, we believe all it teaches. We, it means we obey all it requires. And it means that we trust all that it promises. And why is it so important then? I mean, you say, okay, Tim, so we submit to Scripture, but why is that so vital and critical that we do? Well, the answer to that is because if you don't, if you do not submit to Scripture, you will submit to something else, which will invariably, inevitably lead you astray. In other words, it's not like submitting the Bible means you're somehow turning your brain off or, you know, letting yourself become a mindless drone, or you're not thinking for yourself. No, don't buy into that. If you do not submit yourself to what the Scripture says, you will submit yourself to something else. Most likely what you will do is patch together some type of code of ethics that will kind of help you navigate life enough to keep you out of jail, right? And, and make you a somewhat tolerable human being. But most likely it will not, in fact, emphatically it will not answer your most deepest needs. And you will be left, as most people are, while they can basically probably obey the law enough to keep themselves out of trouble, they will actually go through life with despair, hopelessness, bitterness, um, destruction, confusion, lingering questions, lack of forgiveness, all of those things which plague a society that is highly medicated, that is deeply depressed, that is deeply in debt out of uh, endless amounts of retail therapy, somehow to soothe this problem of the soul. And so let's not think for a moment that if we submit to Scripture, that somehow means that we have surrendered our intellectual capacity or anything else. What we are doing is submitting ourselves to something that we say is higher than us and has actual authority over us and will lead us to places of freedom and joy and ultimately what we were made for. So what is this book anyway? Well, the Bible really is an amazing thing. You know, it's, it's, it was written by over 66 books, as you know, written by over 40 different authors in, um, over a period of 1,500 years across three continents in three different languages. And everything from, from all these different genres of history, poetry, law, epistle or, you know, letter, um, the, the, the genre of gospel, narrative, and all of these kinds of things written by everyone as high as kings, down to prisoners, um, fishermen, people from all walks of life, in all scenarios, people at the height of joy, at the depth of sorrow. And yet when you put it all together, it's this comprehensive, amazing thing that you never really get to the bottom of. A lot of people will say, well, you know, and it's fine to say this, but they'll say, well, the Bible is an owner's manual for your life, right? And it's a, that's a nice little saying. The Bible is an owner's manual for your life. But have you ever read an owner's manual? They're really boring. And they're very one-dimensional. 
right? I mean, and you, there's, you never meditate on an owner's manual, you know? Gee, I got to go think about changing my oil every, every 5,000 miles. So go up to the mountains and like meditate on that. No, you don't do that. kind. You go there to get the answer for what you need from a technical problem and you move on. But that's not the scripture. The scripture is inexhaustible. I, knew, I had seminary professors that, that, that had spent decades studying the Bible and every year they would buy a new one that was fresh and unmarked in. And they would begin to write it because they wanted to read it again and again with fresh eyes because they could never dredge the depths of it and all of the dimensionality of the emotion and the, and the, the, the truth that's contained. It cuts across every sphere of life. And so when you order your life around the Bible, you find your way. This is why David said in Psalm 119, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statues. And man, isn't that the truth? You ever been to college? Holy cow. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've been to plenty of college, and I suppose I shouldn't say that in, you know, this place where you meet in, in a college. And I got nothing wrong with college, but knowledge does not equal wisdom. And if you're a student here today, don't be intimidated by the amount of letters someone has after their name. Oftentimes, the average person picking uh, fruit in a field has more wisdom about life than the average PhD student because they do not equate. Knowledge is important. I want the guy flying my plane to know how to fly a plane, but it doesn't know that person knows how to navigate life. Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And you know like what all happens to us in our lives. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And what is the rock? It is the words of Jesus. It is everything that makes up this book. And that will characterize your life. You know, I've seen a lot of people who, who had everything that life had to offer them and they, they just self-destructed over time because they built their house on the sand and it fell apart. And conversely, I've seen people come from all kinds of terrible situations and backgrounds who just have a, who, who they get to the end of their life and there's joy. They're not wrecked by anything. They might have had terrible tragedies, but they're ultimately not destroyed. They're stronger than they've ever been. And it's because they built their life on, on this book. And so submitting to Scripture means, first of all, believing all that it teaches. You know, if you just look at the story of creation, and not just how this whole place uh, got here, but the, the answers to the great questions of, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? If you just look at the first three chapters of Genesis alone, you will get answers to those questions that will serve you over the entire course of your life. In other words, in Genesis, for the first time, you get the idea of a creator over creation. So a guy named Thomas Cahill wrote about this in his book, The Gifts of the Jews. And he said, for the first time, when you look at Genesis 1, the significance of it was not that it was intended to necessarily be a science textbook, although it never goes against nature, by the way, what is true about nature. But what the design of Genesis 1 was designed to do was to teach humanity at that time, who was sacrificing their children to the sun and the moon, 
moon and living in fear of the clouds and the rain and the rivers overflowing and all this kind of stuff, that the creation is not to be worshipped, but the creator is supposed to be worshipped. The creation was made for us, not us for creation. And so so for the first time, this concept that we take for granted today was introduced to humanity through Genesis 1, and it's repeated in Romans 1 as we talk about the fall of civilizations always happen when they revert to worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so because it places bonds on you, it shackles you, it it puts you in a life of fear and confusion. But you also have in Genesis 1, just as an example, the introduction of structure and order in the world. So God makes the world in seven days, and the seventh day he rests. And you and I take to, to for granted the idea of a Sabbath day, a Sunday, even two days, Saturday and Sunday, of not working. I'll never forget when I was in India uh, back in 2009. And I remember it was Sunday morning and we were driving through this rural area and there was all these people out in the fields working. And I go, hey, they're working on Sunday. Why are they working on Sunday? And the guy laughs. He goes, they work every day. There's no Sunday here. There's no day of rest here. It's not, they don't have it in that. That's not a part of their mentality. Can you imagine that? Every single day of your life, the message is you work and work and work and that's all that you do. But the Sabbath day was put in, was put in place to remind you that you're not a machine. And to remind you that you were born not merely to survive, but to celebrate. That you have dignity as a human being. And that you set aside time to remember and live in gratitude and even a preview of the rest that's to come someday in heaven. And we don't even, we don't even blink an eye with those kinds of concepts. But it came in because of the word of God. And of course you have man made in the image of God. Who, who, that, that's what brings, gives man value intrinsically. And of course we have the creation of male and female. And everybody gets mad because they go, well why was the man made first and then the woman? And they think it's misogynistic and everything else. What you don't understand, or what people who don't really take it seriously go, there's actual incredible beauty and value to that. Because the woman was created out of a point of need. She wasn't just made along with the cows and the rhinoceroses and every, on the birds and everything else. She was made out of a point of need because even in paradise, Adam recognized that he was alone. And so God said, ah, I will make a suitable helper, which in the Hebrew phrase, in the Hebrew is the phrase ezer konegdo, which means strength at the point of weakness. And so I'll ask you how many men would be rotting in prison for domestic violence crimes, if they had been raised to believe that the woman they had beat was actually created to be strength at the point of weakness, that she was to be valued and treasured and not cast aside or treated like any common animal. But where do you get that knowledge? It doesn't come intrinsically. It has to be taught. It has to be shown. It has to be demonstrated. It has to be rooted in the very fabric of life itself, which is what Genesis does. And then, of course, we move to the story of marriage. Every wedding you've ever gone to, simply all it does, if you want to know how a wedding works, it reenacts the first wedding of Adam being, of Eve being brought to Adam. It's just, it plays it out physically over and over and over again. Every marriage problem and every marriage solution is found in the first three chapters of Genesis. If you know why 
So often men become passive and, and they're not the guy that you fell in love with, ladies, because they're getting beaten down by all the things of life. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 answers that. And uh, guys, if you wonder why she's always nagging and complaining and doesn't respect you or give you the adulation that you think you deserve, it's written, it's, under, it's, it's underscored, it's displayed in what happens when sin comes into the world. And so we got to figure out how to counteract that. But if we don't know why it happens, if we don't realize this is part of human nature, then we're just lost. Then there is the understanding of creation or in creation of the reality of sin. And there's always in us this idea that there's got to be something better out there, but we don't even know what it is because all we've known is a world of sin. Just this week I was studying because I, ha- I have the privilege of serving in the Air Force Reserve as a chaplain. And so when you're um, in the, in the uh, track that I'm in, they do a lot of this, what they call um, professional military education. And it's really fascinating. They teach you all kinds of stuff. And so I'm on this class. I'm in this class on power. And they do studies on power. And the problem of power, because how many people have you heard about in every industry, but in the military, they're not immune from it, of abuse of power, because there's people in the military who can have tremendous amounts of it. And so they're trying to study how to help officers deal with the power that they'll inevitably get throughout the course of their career. And so there's this one study, and what they've learned is when, you, when they've studied people, when you give them power, they call it prime with power. When you prime someone with power, they begin to exhibit certain characteristics. They lose empathy. They begin to not be able to um, resonate with other people. They objectify people. They are prone to enforce rules that they themselves don't abide by. There's a guy named uh, Dr. Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, who wrote an article in Harvard Business Review called Don't Let Power Corrupt You. And it's amazing because he said they've they've studied what happens to people when you give them power. And and I quote him. He said, "When, when when you give someone power, you can observe them. It's a state of mania. They experience a rush of omnipotence. Genesis 3, the serpent says to Eve, take the fruit and you will be like God. I want that, right? And in the study and in the podcast I was listening to in the article, they don't really know how to help people who get this kind of power. They just say you need to be aware of it and try to be gentler, There's no framework to say. Ecclesiastes says, no, 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 no. You are not God. You fear God and keep his commandments for that is the whole duty of man. You were not born to accumulate power. You were born to glorify God. And if you get power, you use that power to glorify God and make his name known and make his existence real not build it up for yourself. And that's a lifelong discipline, but you submit yourself to it. But without the scripture, you don't have the language. You don't have the structure. And so we see destruction all around us because of this. And then it even gets worse with, of course, in our political world. So, the fantastic book by a guy named Paul Johnson wrote a book called Modern Times. It's 800-page tome on the 20th century 
on the brutality of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, the atomic age, Vietnam, communism, 100 million people slaughtered at the hands of communism. And so here, you, you know, I read this book a number of years ago, and I go get to the first page, and here's this book that's going to document all of the atrocities and horrors of what has been the bloodiest and most lethal and horrid uh, century in all of human history. And at the very first page, in this very ominous fashion, there's this one verse printed at the very beginning of the book out of Psalm chapter 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be, ruler, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Because God can take you down like that. And these guys are all dead. And the word of God still remains. So, this scripture needs to be on the desk of every politician, every president, every chancellor, every king in the world. Otherwise, there is no stopping anything that they would do. Second thing we have to do is we have to obey all that the scripture requires. So it says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's something transforming in me. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that this, there's an implication in this verse that there's something wrong with the mind that I've had before. So I strive to obey. We know that faith is the foundation of everything, but faith expresses itself in obedience. See, the beautiful thing about the Scripture is that it teaches us we talked about creation, but it also talks about redemption. That's the other major theme. And the, 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 the basic understanding of redemption is that we don't save ourselves. We are saved by grace. That is the theme throughout Scripture is grace. So when people look and they say, well, all religions are basically the same. Well, not really. A lot of ethical systems are very similar. And that's because we're, as people, we're similar. I mean, everybody knows you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't do this. And people know this generally, right? So horizontally, the way we relate to one another, there often is a lot of similarities. But vertically, the way we understand and relate to God is very, very different. And Christianity stands alone and the Scripture stands alone in its signaling that your redemption, what saves you, what rescues you from yourself and the world and death and everything else is God, not you. And, and the fundamental response that that produces from grace is gratitude. You have to understand that. There's no other, there's no other mechanism to produce gratitude. Now, why is that important? Well, this guy named G.C. Burkauer said this, The essence of theology is grace. The essence of ethics is gratitude. So you think about it. That, so, so at the core of theology, at the core of what we understand about God, everything, when everything is said and done, the, the message, and we'll talk more about this in, in a few minutes, the message is driven through is that of grace. And, and the result of that is a heart that is enlarged by and filled with gratitude. And gratitude then is what drives the behavior of the Christian. Why is that important? Well, 
If theology or if grace is not the essence of theology, you're done. If it's works, you will never be a person of gratitude. You will always be a person trying to one-up somebody else. But when you have gratitude, everybody wants to live next to a, a, a grateful person, right? Don't you want to have a grateful person as your next-door neighbor? <laughs> Don't you want a grateful person when you go to the store? Yeah. Gratitude is, the, is one of the, is the foundation for all of ethics. I absolutely believe that. And the problem is, and of course, Jesus talks about this even in the parable of the prodigal son, where everybody thinks the parable of the prodigal son is about the prodigal son. It's not. It's about the older brother. Because the older brother doesn't get grace. The older brother goes, why, father, would you throw a party for that guy who squandered your inheritance and embarrassed our family? And he comes back groveling with nothing and you throw him a party? And he's like, why would you do that? And Jesus goes, see, Pharisees, you're the older brother. And as a recovering older brother, that story means a lot to me. Because I didn't come come by that naturally. So grace, grace, grace produces gratitude. Why is that important? Well, because right now in our society, we are being destroyed by ingratitude. We are being taught to not be grateful. We are having competitions to see who has been wounded the worst in life. And we call it intersectionality. Rack up how many problems you have and how many, how, dis- how distanced you are from a place of privilege in society. And what we're doing is we're teaching young people to see nothing but the glass half empty in their life. I'm this way, I'm this way, I'm this way, I'm this way, and it's because of you. Wow. If gratitude is the essence of ethics, then ingratitude is the essence of evil. It is the justification of evil. Every, every evil thing you've done, you said, I did it because it was my right. I'm getting back at everybody for all they've done to me. I deserve this. <laughs> Our society, if it continues down a path of ingratitude, is doomed. Doomed. We got to turn that sucker around fast. But there's no other way to do it without this. Because this There's no other language. There's no other mechanism. There's no other reason for gratitude. Because it's not just what I'm grateful for, but it's who I'm grateful to. And that's what makes all the difference. But in any case, we obey. And so we see this even in the Ten Commandments. We know the ten, we don't break the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments break us. We don't do it to, to earn favor with God. We do it as a structure. So what happens in the Old Testament, you have the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, you have the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. So I don't just, you just do not murder. Okay, I'll go through my life and really try harder to murder. No, the, the fulfillment of that command is love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how are you going to do that without Jesus? Do not steal. Okay, I'll go through my life and not try to take anything from Walmart. But the New Testament command is give generously. Give all that you have. Give more than required. Right? And on and on and on and on. And so, Cain, the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis. Cain is upset. And God says, Sin crouches at the door. It desires to have you, but you must overcome it. Can you imagine if we taught our young men, our young women for that matter too, but especially our young men, sin's coming after you. It desires to take you out, and you've got to deal with that. So finally, I trust 
in all that the Scripture promises. So in Romans chapter 8, it says this, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. You see that. I ask you, do you trust that? When you are laying in a hospital bed, when you get the diagnosis that it's not going well, when you get fired from your job, when your boyfriend dumps you over a text, doesn't even have the courtesy to call, and you feel like your life is empty, do you trust what this says? That's why it's more than an owner's manual. Do you let it run through you? Do you return to it over and over and over again? Scripture, in Scripture is written the story of our redemption. This guy named Makoto Fujimura, you may have heard of him. He's a very uh, gifted artist. Does these Japanese um, style art. And he wrote a book called Art and Faith. And he talks about this certain Japanese art form called Kintsugi. And the origins, there's, I guess, several origin stories, but the one he tells is back in the 16th century, there was this Japanese tea master who's the, you know, the greatest tea master in the world. So you think you make a good pot of tea. He makes better one than you do. And so he was making this tea to give to this warlord in Japan who had requested it. And so the servant of the warlord was bringing the tea from the tea master to the warlord in a priceless, irreplaceable piece of pottery. And while he's bringing it to the warlord, he slips and falls and the pottery shatters into five pieces on the ground. Of course, the warlord finds out about this and he's very upset because you can't replace this. It's priceless. And just as he's about to presumably execute this servant for what he had done, the tea master steps in and sings this poem like kind of over the whole situation. And in doing so, he atones for the sin of the servant. And he says, I will take responsibility for what this young man has done. And he picks up the five pieces of pottery and he glues them back together with this special kind of lacquer. And he lines the cracks with gold so that this piece of pottery is more beautiful restored than it was before it was ever broken. And Fujimura goes on to say that became the basis of Kintsugi. Beauty through brokenness. And that is story of Scripture. If you want to know how to read the Bible, you need to read it through the lens of redemption, of beauty, through brokenness. That every single one of us is put back together so that we are more beautiful 
because of the grace of God than we were before we were shattered on the ground. Which is why even the scars of Jesus from being nailed to the cross will remain on him for all of eternity. Because they will always be reminders of the depth of God's love which would have been previously unknown were it not for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So what's the next step for you? Well, in your sheets that you have for small groups, Scott, Scott did a sermon very similar to the one that I made. Our brains were kind of in sync. And so he has some next steps which are very good. But I want to give you one as well. Run one scenario through the themes of Scripture this week. In other words, it's not just about going to the Bible to find the right answer like you would an owner's manual. It's about some conflict that you may have, something you might see in the news, even a movie you're watching that presents a scenario of conflict between people, or some situation that you don't know the answer to and run it through what the scripture says about who you are, who God is, what this whole life is about, and see if you won't be able to unlock the great mysteries of life through it. And let the scripture be the thing that shines the light on everything that you do. Let the scripture not just be something that you, and I, and I get it, we, I, I'm all for the one-year Bible and, and the daily Bible reading plans. I think that's so good, but we got to make sure we're not being mechanical, people. We're not going to be mechanical. No, no, no. Let's not be mechanical. Let's have it be just the natural reaction. You get up in the morning and you go, I need coffee today. I'm not going to be able to see the world clearly till I have some coffee. I'm not going to really be able to function correctly unless I have some coffee. This is, your natu- this is just your go-to. What does the scripture say about this? How does the scripture help me understand this? Untie this knot. Untangle this thing. Help me deal with this problem that I don't, because it's there. It's there and it's not just some quick little three-word thing found on page 785 or whatever. It's, it's through the, the whole compendium of all of the richness and depth that has been revealed to us with such creativity by the God of all creation himself. Let's pray together. Father, you are, you are so good to us. You've given us your word. You haven't been content to let us try to navigate this life guessing just on our own, but you've spoken to us. You've opened our eyes. You've unlocked for us the secrets of otherwise would always remain hidden to us. But we know at the center of everything, at the center of all of this, the hinge point of everything is Jesus. If there's anyone here today who needs to know him, right where they are, they would just say, you know what, I believe. I get it. If that's really true, God, I am a broken piece of pottery on this ground and I need to be put back together. And if you, could, if you could put me back together and, and line those cracks with gold and, and restore my life, I'm telling you, I can't do it on my own. I need you. 
So yeah, I'm done. I'm done pretending I'm some great guy. I'm done pretending I, I can impress you with all the wonderful things I've done. I'm some good citizen. I am in deep need of your grace. If there's anyone here today who's just lost, they're, they're a believer, but they're just going through a time of just the fog of life. God, may they read something in your word this week. May they be encouraged by some passage or principle that you revealed. And they could go, God, you're speaking to me. You're speaking to me. You're speaking to me. You have not left us alone. You are with us every day. All the time. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.